Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, your adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet in the sunny and windy and sometimes stormy eastern (laughs) Sierra. Um, I am your co-host Christopher and with me is... I am your co-host Stacy and with us as always is our producer Doug. Hi Doug. Doug. Hey guys, I was going to say ho, ho, ho and I don't know why or what led me to that but instead (laughs) I should be saying... Hop, 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 we're doing great and we were just discussing that we we're recording this just before Easter and yes. talking about our Easter plan. So uh, All right. that's right. And, and of course, school's about to be out for a week, Doug, so I know you're busy. Yeah, it's time to switch a bunch of old equipment out and put a bunch of new equipment in and perform technical magic. Oh, all, all while snow is flying around. Yeah, yeah. Is it going to be? I haven't seen the predictions. Are we looking at snow or something? Well, it's kind of been on and off all week. Um, yeah, it certainly is cold. Someone I called and said today, hey, welcome to our second winter. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Pretty much yeah. what happens in the Eastern Sierra this time of yeah. year, right? Summer yeah. one day and winter the next day. And the Easter Bunny comes in and swaps out all the IT equipment. <laughs> 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 well, uh, uh, we won't keep you too long, Doug, but we will go in and start talking about books. Yes. We say? Or actually a book, right? A this, book today. This yeah. time we decided we would read the same book and, and chat at each other about it. So Stace, tell us what you picked. Sure. So we had we had agreed that we would read something that revolved around nature or had some part of nature because it's springtime, right. sort of. And <laughs> so I came upon a new book, um, fairly new. Mm-hmm. It's called Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, The Pastoral Observations of One Ignorant American Who Loves to Walk Outside. And since we are Americans who love to walk outside, ignorant (laughs) or otherwise. I was going to say somewhat ignorant. (laughs) Yeah. So so this is written by Nick Offerman, which some of our listeners might know. He is an actor and a woodworker and... And an author. This is his fourth book. Yeah. And I have not had the opportunity to read any of his other books, but I, I want to now. Um, he definitely it, has a cult following. It, it, absolutely. And, you know, he's quite the outdoorsman and an adventure person. So um, he had a, he has a lot to say. <laughs> You know, I uh, um, I love his character from Parks and Rec. He plays Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation, which was the sitcom from like the late two thousands, early teens. And yes, I think that's where he really got well known by many many Americans. And what I loved was that personality. You understand in that character is actually a good portion him, like that same kind of tone of 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 you know manly manliness and kind of you know witty sarcasm and that kind of stuff actually is, I think, a little bit him. So it may have actually just been written for Nick Offerman. I don't know. But the same kind of tone comes across in the book is what I'm trying to say. And I think a lot of readers will enjoy it. Absolutely. And I've 
Mr. Offerman, if you're listening, don't take this the wrong way, but I'm not familiar with your acting, but I really enjoyed your writing. And I, I listened to the book on, on Audible and it's narrated by him, which I think adds to the, the flavor of, of the book. But, um, so the book is set up, it's in three parts and then, and then an epilogue. And the first part, he uh, talks about a trip that he and his two best friends made to Glacier National Park and their their hijinks that they <laughs> they went through on that trip. Right. The second part focuses more on farming and his experiences going over to England and um, staying with, is it Rebanks? James Rebanks. James Rebanks, yeah. who, who is also a very well-known author. And, and everything that he, he participated in doing when he was on that, that, which it is a working farm, and mm-hmm. he did do quite a bit of work there. And then the last section tells about his travels in an Airstream camper trailer Mm -hmm. with his wife, who's an actress, um, Megan Mullally. And they, they buy this Airstream during the pandemic as so many people did. And they travel from California to um, Oklahoma and then to Illinois over the the holidays basically to visit family right yeah Yeah, but to visit their family and um he is from illinois like me and he definitely has a midwestern sensibility i i found (laughs) it explains a lot the two of you have a lot in common i think (laughs) i i i kind of thought you know what he was describing his his childhood you know there were a lot of similarities in the sensibilities with which we were raised you know what um and so what ties these three things together of course is these are like outdoor activities and they're Mm -hmm. like engaged activities you're hiking or you're helping out on the farm you're doing stuff with your hands or you're walking he's an avid walker he talks about that in the book yes um or you're traveling somewhere you're not sitting at home watching tv or you know stuff like that. So, um, so I really enjoyed that. And the other thing, just to kind of preface the conversation here is to me, his approach is very much, his sense of humor is kind of a Will Rogers kind of sense of humor. Like absolutely not quite a cranky old man, but a guy who's got kind of laid back, but is also really opinionated and kind of gruff and and he's also kind of mixed with i think a little teddy roosevelt where he's just kind of like in awe of the outdoors they like totally bowl him over and so he wants everyone else to be as well um so yeah yeah he has that custodial um you know attitude toward the land and and that that really actually that comes up the most in the epilogue right it right. Does. You know, he, where he really talks about what our responsibility is. And he, he shares this beautiful quote. I, he, this quote about how we're comparing ourselves to the, it's not a, it's, it's a absurd quote, actually. He's comparing like where the narrator saying the quote is comparing our, our humans. Are we more, are we greater than the stars? And he takes, you know, 
visceral exception to this. How can we say that we are greater than the stars? But, he, you know, he he definitely has that, you know, attitude of we have to take care of this land and, and we're not doing a very good job of it. Right. No, it's absolutely true. Um, and so that kind of comes across throughout the, that's a through thread of the mm-hmm. entire book. So this, this love and this custodial stewardship approach to, yeah. to our engagement with nature. And as well, what also comes out in this book, and we should probably start talking about the Glacier Natural Park, National Park yeah. section, is he's very well read. He quotes repeatedly from classic authors to, you know, Aldo Leopold and John. Yeah. Aldo Leopold is a theme too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, like, so he's, he does his research, right. And and so this isn't just like armchair, um, hiking for him. He's really into this. It's Uh, not just like observations either, you know, like humorous observations he digs in. And I really respected that. So what I loved when he first started digging in in the first part of the book is um, he's meeting up with his two good friends who are Jeff Tweedy um, from the band Wilco, who many of our listeners will know and love, and um, George Saunders, the author, who many of our listeners will know and love because we've talked about him. That's right. Yes. <laughs> and um, what got me, which because I'm very self-conscious about this too, is they are meeting up. They're coming from different parts of the country and they're flying into a uh, meetup near Glacier Natural National Park. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, th- three guys, they're away from their wives. There's just the three of them. They're going to get a guide. And where do they go first? They go to an REI store. And because... Um, city dudes. So perfect. Um, and there's kind of this funny setup where he, they're like, he and Jeff Tweedy are like modeling different kinds of like shirts and clothes yeah, and parkas. <laughs> because, you know, they're, they're about to go out in the back country and you have to right. have just the right stuff. And, and then there's George Saunders, the writer who is just like showing up in old sensible clothing, you yeah, know, right. flannel and a waterproof jacket. And, and, uh, you know, I think he describes him as having, a water bottle that he probably was gifted at a conference at some point, mm-hmm. like nothing fancy, yeah. no yay right. or anything like that. Um, and it was just a really kind of fun way of setting the three of them up as characters who then go off kind of like the three stooges um, mm-hmm. into the back country with a guide on a variety of different hikes and, uh, and river rafting at one point. Yes. Yeah. And they, they have all sorts of, as you would on a trip like this, you know, there are various hiccups along the way. And, you know, and this, this is kind of the section where he does make some, you know, just like humorous observations Mm -hmm. that the section where they talk about the family ahead of them Mm -hmm. and and any of our listeners, any of y'all that when you go hiking, you have you have experienced this situation where where you have a multi-generational family ahead of you on the trail and one of the members one of the adults has to stop and point out every little thing incorrectly <laughs> or otherwise or correctly to the children with them and in this case it was bad every every animal was a badger <laughs> Well, it is fun because he does talk about that. Like, and also like, um, you know, encountering the lone hiker who was going right. to come behind them, but I stay know. at a distance, but as with visual connection for safety. And he talks right. about like, you know, when you're out on trails and we would know this, right. You do yeah, kind absolutely. of try to space yourself between different mm-hmm. groups because you don't yeah. want to 
you want to be experiencing it and not overhearing all the other conversations or all that kind of stuff. Um, and then one of my favorite rant, not rants, but observations that he goes on because he goes on a lot of tangents, like things will come up and then he'll like start, you know, going yeah, off on like riffing on it, like a comedian, yes. um, was, you know, the kind of thing about, about when you're hiking and you're passing people on the trail, do you wave hi? Do you say hi? Or do you not? Or, you know, it's like, so what do you do, Christopher? That. What do you do when you're when you're hiking with Wills and a family's coming your way or a person's coming your way? Are you a person who says hi or are you a kind of just like acknowledge with a nod of your head? <laughs> so, you know what? Um, I've thought about this after as I was reading this, as I'm sure you have to yes. throw the question back at you in a second is on the way in you know, depending on which direction we're going, it's always like, hi, you know, how are you? Or, you know, a great Uh day for a hike. And then on the way back, when you're usually like at 10% energy level and your knees are screaming (laughs) and you're doing all you can just to make it back down to the parking lot in one piece, I will still say hi or whatever, but I always have to like, okay, there's someone coming and like 20 yards away, I start like reserving my energy and breathing in so that I can like (laughs) pretend like this hike was so easy. Um, And then it's always like really stupid, like great day for a hike, isn't it? You know, and then I'm sure they're just looking at who's this old man is like joking at me as I walk by, but but no, we assiduously try to say hi because why not? But what do you and Joe do? We always say hi, mm-hmm. whether we're coming or going. But the fu- the funny thing is that he also talks about when he's running because mm. he, he runs every day and he talks about saying hi to people in L.A. when he's running. And when so now when we're hiking and Joe and I are on the trail, we both always say hi. And if yeah. anything, Joe is more he will more say hi first. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. But when we were running together. I always say hi to people (laughs) and it drives him crazy. He never talks to anybody, barely even talks to me when we're running together. (laughs) And he always, I mean, when we would run like my, like 10, 15 miles together Mm -hmm. and I'd be saying hi to people, eventually by about mile seven, he'd be like, shut up. (laughs) Don't say hi anymore. (laughs) I never could when Wills and I ran together years and years ago because I'm not a runner I wasn't able to say hi like he would hold on a conversation with people and I'd be barely able to breathe so that's impressive <laughs> but, but it is funny because he does talk he connects it to this riff on him running the streets yeah. of LA and Beverly mm-hmm. Hills or wherever they live and like waving at cars because you're running on the street there's no sidewalk right. and and you know his opinions about who waves back and who doesn't wave back and who says right. hi and who doesn't you know this is a guy with opinions let's just say that so absolutely but that really i mean i i went right to that space <laughs> you know saying hi to people on the trail and yeah you know do they say hi back and all that i thought that was pretty apropos. I thought one of the other interesting parts of this section, he does go into, like, he sets it up. Like, he talks about how it was turned into a park, you know, back Mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt doing all this stuff and how it was very well meant, but it was actually started out as, you know, to preserve game for hunting rather than preserve nature. And and the whole Blackfeet, Blackfoot Indian um, 
uh, uh, culture that was there and then kind of driven off. So he sets all of that up. Um, and so he, he's got this macro story going along and then there's these little micro stories that happened as hijinks <laughs> as they're yes. on the trail. And at one point they're rafting and, <laughs> um, George Saunders, who, if you've ever seen him, he's kind of, he's not like a nebbishy guy. He's just like a really thin guy. He's an academic, right? Mm -hmm. But you really laid back and he wears these little thin wireframe glasses. And apparently at one point, is it Jeff Tweedy? Jeff Tweedy. Yeah. Yeah. Like his glasses come off and he doesn't realize, or he, he puts them in his pocket and they go over a rapid or something and the glasses inadvertently fall out into the boat and Jeff Tweedy just reaches over and sees them, happens to see them and, and, and saves them. them. And because the George Saunders would have been half blind for the rest of the week. Right. Um, <laughs> and it just became like a nice little, little story that like a fish story in a way, like it became more dramatic every time it was retold. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and I, I loved when he brought it back in the third section and they go happen, they happen to go visit Jeff Tweedy and his wife and their kids on their Airstream trip. And he goes on about how Je- this story of, you know, this little, in- this little incident mm-hmm. has now become an hour and a half long story. <laughs> um, and that he's, he's, he is relegated at that point to just like nod his head to verify details. And right. he's like over it. It's like, <laughs> okay, well, I just got to let him go. And I-, I love that because it's, that is so, um, it's so true of fishermen and, mm-hmm. and Nick Offerman is also a fisherman, right? you know, telling s- these fish tales that, you know, the fish was, you know, three pounds on the day that you caught it. And, you know, three months later it was, yeah. t- you know, 90 pounds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, there's a lot more to that section of the book, the Glacier National Park section and, and, so we won't go into all of it because people right. should read it. It's a it's, yes. a it's a newish book. It came out just last fall, um, but I will say there's a lot more hijinks and entertaining and and really smart observations um, yeah. uh, about nature here as well. So he's conveying information and history as well as just like three guys on a boat kind of thing. Um, I also have to say I really enjoyed the second section about the Rebanks farm in England and how he kind of got connected to them. If, if our listeners don't know, I think I may have talked about one of these books on the podcast a long time ago, mm-hmm. James Rebanks um, kind of gave up uh, a, a city life in England to inherit his father's small farm in Northern England. I think it's up in Cumbria or Northumberland or somewhere. Cumbria. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and his intention was, so he relocates to this farm um, where they have a lot of sheep. He's a shepherd um, with his wife and they have a small family. And um, he's like, we're going to make it work. And this is in the age of industrial farming. They're still right. a very traditional farm. And there's a lot of pressure to take on the industrial farming techniques, but he really wants to bring the farm back to something that's much more natural because it will reap its own benefits mm-hmm. um, in terms of what he can farm. And, and so his two books are the shepherd's life, which was hugely popular. That was his first big hit about this moving back. And then his next book is called English pastoral. It just came out, I think early last year, um, that kind of continues the story. And it's about, you know, if you have a small holding, you can 
you can have a little bit more control over um, not using the pesticides, not doing right. the industrial size things. And what that does is it allows for more variety. It allows for more rich soil. It, it brings in more bugs in good ways. With right. Good bugs bring in good birds and yeah. <laughs> good fish. I mean, it all ties mm-hmm. together and makes for an uh, ecosystem on this farm that not only generates food, which you want a farm to do, but it also is something that's healthy and can last over time as opposed to industrial farming where it often wears out the soil, drives away bugs, drives away variety, less birds, all those kinds of things that industrial farms do. And so um, uh, Nick Offerman follows him on Instagram and then, Mm -hmm. you know, over the course of time he starts, you know, they get like slide into each other's DMS or whatever the phrase is (laughs) these days. And, and James Rebank says, you know, I don't, really don't know you, but you're welcome to come over and visit if you ever find yourself in the UK. And so a few years later, that happens. And yeah. Nick Offerman does it. And that's where you really, really learn that Nick Offerman likes to do things outdoors and with his hands. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I think yes. his first visit to this farm, it's pouring rain or whatever. First, he's and impressed. They, they make a wall. <laughs> they repair a wall. He, he gets picked up at the train station by James Rebanks in his dirty truck. And he realizes mm-hmm. it's a farmer's truck. So it's dirty for a reason. It's not just dirty because he neglected it. Like someone in Southern California would do. Um, and then they go right to the farm and it's pouring rain and they go up and they start repairing a wall that the sheep have damaged. And, uh, and you know, it's just a, f- it's a fun little demonstration of how much he likes to just muck in and do stuff with his hands and the satisfaction that he gets out of that. Yeah, I think he really he really demonstrates that he is just this Midwestern guy. You know, yeah. he's he's not one of he's not a Hollywood type who's going to put on airs and like, oh, it's raining out. I'm not I I need a warm place to, you know, yeah. relax after I traveled or you know, he he's he's all about earning his keep if you will. Yeah. And you know, he's he's happy to be with his family and he's going to he's going to earn their respect. Right. So, um, yeah. And it's, it, he does do, you said, you mentioned earlier how his research is so meticulous and he, he does do quite a, he does go quite a bit into the kind of the current status of farming Mm -hmm. in not only in our country, but across the world and, you know, makes the point that, yeah, these days the the small little farmer might be able to make it, and certainly the huge big industrial farm at, at peril to our health, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But is going to make it. But those mid sized farmers, they are, you know, there's running out of space yeah. for for them, and yeah. you know, at at what cost to humanity is yeah. that? You yeah. know, yeah, no, absolutely, it, it, and and. He presents that argument really, really smartly, and, and in, mm-hmm. again, a way who of someone who who respects the farm and respects the work. To your point, he's from the Midwest. He knows how to how to get work done and really get satisfaction out of it. Um, and also, as someone who is he's you know, he's not um, I don't know how to say this. Like he he likes carpentry. He likes being outdoors. He loves meat. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. an avid meat eater. You know, he's not someone who's against. Uh, farming or any aspect of farming. She's like, just do it smartly is really what he's saying. Right. And know? respectfully. Yeah. Res- yeah. Yeah, exactly. For sure. And there are some funny hijinks there too. Um, and that he wraps in some of his, um, 
activities of actually working, like being mm-hmm. a working actor or going on tour with his stand-up show in the UK and Manchester and all this kind of stuff. But um, I just really appreciated that point because I enjoyed Rebanks's other books. So it was kind of cool to see these two who I think are cool people in this space connecting and resonating yeah. with each other, which I thought was cool. And then the last part of the book is him and his his bride, Megan. Like, yes. I love how he calls her his bride. That's so funny. <laughs> Megan Mullally, who you know, listeners will recognize from Will and Grace and Parks and Rec and other many sitcoms that she's been on. Um, love her. She's hilarious. And they are probably a combustible couple if ever there was, but it's kind of cool to know that they're together. Um, and during the pandemic, yeah, they go out and do all sorts of research on RVs and trailers and end up buying this Airstream. And then he has to sell his car and buy a bigger car to tow the Airstream. And just this whole, you can kind of like laugh at this kind of like (laughs) couple, like planning to do all this stuff and trying to do the right stuff. And then hijinks ensue and you know they don't realize you got to do a to get to b and all this kind of stuff it's just really kind of like the you know there's definitely a few long 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 trailer you know that desi arnaz Mm -hmm. and lucille ball movie of you know Mm -hmm. years and years (laughs) and years ago yeah there's there are kind of elements of of that and yeah and thank god he has the neighbor the superhero neighbor (laughs) that comes and you know, helps him out with his tools and knowledge and, you yeah. know, which I, th- I thought that was super funny because doesn't everybody have that neighbor, yeah. you know, like the one guy who knows everything about fixing things. Yep. And, and if, and if he doesn't know, he goes off and research it and comes back to you in an hour and will tell you <laughs> exactly. everything you need to know. Right. So yeah, that, that neighbor gets quite a bit of cred in this section of the book. And then they go off, you know, they're going to ultimately meet up with his family back in the Midwest and drop in on Jeff Tweedy and others, but they just set off outside of LA first time in a big gigantic SUV towing a big gigantic trailer and, you know, right. And it's, the- yeah, it's tw- it's November 2020 when they're setting out to do this. So they're, you know, it's right at, at the election time. And and um, it seems like they they went on this trip for several months because they didn't return to California until after right. January 6th of 2021. Right. So um, what I thought was this was one of the very first books or or really any medium that I've seen in a creative way that deal with the pandemic and what that was like, you know, I haven't, you know, really read any fiction that's, that's post pandemic or, or during the pandemic, you know, so I was really interested to see, well, how did they navigate? Oh, how did they navigate the lockdown and, and traveling during this time and, Mm -hmm. you know, what it was like and, I thought I thought he does a really nice job of describing that as they went to different places, the different attitudes towards wearing masks and are yeah. not wearing masks. Yeah. And, and he touched on one point when they're in, I think they were in Oklahoma. They're in one part of Oklahoma and they went into a restaurant and all the patrons were sitting at tables unmasked. But yet the workers in the restaurant, the chefs, you know, the cooks, the waitresses, the waiters are all masked. And he's like, 
uh, where was the rhyme and reason? Where was the, <laughs> why? You know, like he he wondered aloud what many of us, I think, wondered for a very long time when we still yeah. had masking um, requirements. And you know, I mean, I followed all those. Requ- I'm a rule follower. I did what I was told too, but you know, still at times wondered why. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and how it was interpreted or enforced in different parts of the country mm-hmm. as they went around. Yeah. You know, he is, we should mention, he is political in this book. We're not really talking about that, yeah. but that yeah. definitely, he's definitely got a viewpoint. Um, and, uh, you know, respectfully, so he does kind of get overwrought in some of his writing. Like it's just his communication style is a little bit, um, uh, you know, sometimes preachy. Um, but you know, it comes from a place where I think of authenticity and, and I really, really respected that. Um, but I enjoyed that. I mean, to me, that section of the book, cause I don't travel with a trailer, you know, it's not, <laughs> I, it's, it, it, it Im- kind of impacted me mentally less, but it was kind of fun to read. They're bumbling. Like, you know, you can just imagine them going through brochures and websites. Oh, we're going to go to this campground and we're going to have this view and reserve this space. And of course things happen. Right. right. <laughs> and, and they learn this along the way, which I think thousands and thousands of people learned at the same time last year as many people couldn't fly. They went out and bought RVs. Many of them came up to our area and were yes. learning as they went. Right. So there's definitely a bit of that, but then I do want to take, you know, really quickly before we wrap up, cause you mentioned the epilogue and he does, constru- yeah. he constructs the epilogue around the, what was originally the poem, my Western home by Brewster Hiley in 1873, which became the basis of the song, you know, Oh, give me a home where the Buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play. Right. Home on the range. Home on the range. It became a song later. Um, And he really does write this um, beautiful thought provoking few page epilogue using that poem and that song as kind of the hook. Um, for yeah. what we need to, why we need to value the outside and value doing work with our hands and value walking places, um, that kind of stuff. I, I thought it was really, it was beautiful. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be something I would go back to and listen to or read again because it was so beautifully constructed. Um, but you know, the, I, when, before I, you know, started this book, I was hoping maybe he would talk about coming to Mammoth. You know, he is in the Eastern Sierra. So Mr. Offerman, we are, we are welcoming you. We want you to come visit. We'd love to take you hiking and fishing and. Bring Jeff Tweedy and George Saunders and Megan Mullaly. And Megan and yeah. (laughs) um, If you're not familiar with this area, we would love to show you how beautiful an area you have in your backyard. (laughs) So that's a great way to to close it out, Stace. This is Nick Offerman's latest memoir, uh, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play. came out last fall. You can get copies at the library or your local bookstores. Um, But I think we both agree it was a good read that we would recommend to others. Definitely check it out. And we'll be right back. Yes, we will. Oxygen. A colorless, odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved. Suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen-starved podcast. A colorless, odorless, 
culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We are at our conversation part of the podcast, and today we are delighted to have with us Ms. Molly Debaye, Executive Director for First Five Mono. Welcome, Molly. Welcome. Thank you so much, Stacey and Christopher. Nice to be on. I'm excited to talk with you. We're excited to talk with you as well. And you grew up in Mono County, isn't that right? It is right. And I sometimes say that my claim to fame is that I was born in Bridgeport. Wow. (laughs) One of the few remaining people who can say that, right? I, I think you're the only guest we've ever had who's like a true native native and <laughs> yeah, has been no born question. in Bridgeport. No question about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> me. And then the other person I know is, well, there's a few, but the seventh grade teacher in Bridgeport comes to mind. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to, for our listeners who are out of the area, we should remind them Bridgeport is the county seat in the middle of the county or kind of northern middle of the county. Really beautiful, small, scenic town that used to have a hospital and it doesn't anymore. Right. So that's the that's where this comes from. But that's great. So what happened after Bridgeport, Molly? Oh, gosh. Well, I grew up around Mono Lake and Levining and Mono City, which is where I'm back to now. And I had a 15-year stint of college and having a family um, that started in Berkeley, went to LA, and finished in Lawrence, Kansas. So wow. I don't know. I think Stacy might be a, base, a basketball fan and just want to glow. They won the national championship. Yes. Yeah. I did wear red and blue the next day. Not a soul noticed. I knew really? I was not in Kansas. Yeah, I, I, I would have noticed because I actually won a basket. I won an NCAA pool this year, so I thank you, Kansas, for doing yeah. such a good job. Uh, <laughs> so Lee, Lee Vining schools right now are are very small were they small when you went there too or were was the student population bigger yeah that's another great question and my kids and I talk about this a lot because they also graduated right from Levining High School and my graduating class was eight which I had always bragged about but now both of my children graduated with classes of six so Wow. It's probably a significant percentage of a decrease if you're going to go percentage wise, (laughs) which shows you how bad percentages function in a small population county. Absolutely. So you, so let me get this straight. So you went, you went to a high school where you graduated with a class of eight and you went to Berkeley for yep. college. Yep. How, how was that? Tra- I mean, I, I, I wonder about this often, how it is for kids who go to the, our small schools and then go to these huge universities. So what was that like? I was so ready to get out of Levining. <laughs> Um, which is even more ironic because where am I now? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. It took a little bit of life to realize the benefits of levining. And I, I think I wouldn't have realized them as, you know, the way that I did if I hadn't left and come back. Mm-hmm. Um, Berkeley was really exciting. Um, homeless people were really hard to deal with. There was a lot of like big city lessons that I had to learn quickly and probably all the hard way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, I loved it. And although that said, I loved the city and there was a reason that I, I actually transferred from Berkeley to UCL. Well, I didn't transfer straight to UCLA. I graduated mm-hmm. undergrad from UCLA but I transferred to LA city college in between because it wasn't fast enough for me to get out of Berkeley (laughs) 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 and and really specifically the homeless problem. I had to walk down telegraph to my dorm. It was really far down away from campus. And there were people that I got to know because I was friendly and I didn't know really another great way to cope with that probably besides moving. Yeah. And L.A. really appealed to me. There was another facet of my time in Berkeley um, that I talk about. When I left Mono County, it was primarily Republican. And I was really seeking a community in which um, people were open-minded. And I got to Berkeley, and I didn't find that. I found that people were just as closed-minded, if not more, than Republicans that I'd grown up with on the other end of the spectrum. And in L.A., I found freedom. You know, I think that L.A., nobody cares if you're (laughs) a Republican or a Democrat. You know, you just kind of hang out and it's all fine. It's so diverse. It's so diverse. And so I really do to this day love L.A. for its diversity in both thought and uh, ethnic and cultural and geography, everything. It's got it all. That all resonates with me, Molly. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I also grew up on the Eastern Sierra and couldn't wait to get to the other side of the mountains because that's where the world was, right? And it's interesting you bring up the homeless issue at college because I went to Santa Barbara and they had still um, homeless issues as well. And what I what, what amazed me about it is in Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, the little student city town next to campus was kind of a haven for many homeless people and you would get to know them. And, you know, and sometimes you couldn't tell who was homeless and who wasn't because we're all playing khaki sack <laughs> barefoot in the park together, you know? And so I really didn't understand. man in IV. I know it well. <laughs> you know it well. Thank you. Yeah. You probably spent many, much quality time there as I did. The, um, but I didn't really understand what um, homeless issues were until actually after I got out of college and I started living in real dense urban areas and realized, oh, these people, it isn't a lifestyle choice. <laughs> it's not like they're right. all going to hang out and party with college students. You know, these are people with really serious problems that um, probably gravitate to a lot of academic university areas because there are support systems there or because people maybe don't judge them as much or what have you. But it's interesting that you bring that up because I had a very similar experience when I went there. So it's it's fascinating. Yeah, we haven't talked about our backgrounds yet before, Christopher, but (laughs) it is something I've been curious about because I realized early on that you had grown up here and and moved away, but didn't know you went to Santa Barbara. And um, I lived there in high school. My mom went back to college. Oh, wow. So you do know it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about it offline someday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
So when you said your journey took you to, you know, Northern California, Southern California, and then before you moved back here, you lived in Lawrence, Kansas. So what was the draw there? Oh, that's Very different one of my place. favorite stories. You guys are just good at getting these out of me. And thanks for asking. Um, so I'd been living in LA for five years and had graduated and was in a job I didn't love. And, you know, 25, reflecting yeah. on life, what can I do? And um, I've always loved to travel. And I've always been curious about new places. And my major was anthropology. Mm -hmm. So I thought of a place that nobody I knew had ever been and that the train went to because I love trains. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's great. And I ended up in Kansas City, actually, okay. um, where my both of my children were born, Kansas City, Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, met my husband, my ex-husband now at a city market in Kansas City. He was selling produce, selling mm. cherries. To be specific. <laughs> um, and yeah, had my kids, started home visiting as a, well, you know, I had a home visitor, um, come and visit me with my mm -hmm. children and that's mm -hmm. somebody that helps teach parents child development. She encouraged me to apply for a position, which I did, um, and got, and be, yeah, that began my career in early childhood, but you know, I still had that thirst for more. I I've always, um, been, you know, wanted to teach uh, anthropology, mm -hmm. which I have done locally at Saracoso. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it looks less and less appealing the longer I'm in <laughs> you know, my position. I'm happy where I am, you know, yeah, that's great. Um, anyways, so yeah, Kansas city and then applied to grad school, got into Lawrence, Kansas, which is only an hour away. Mm -hmm. So commuted for, I don't know, only about six months and then decided an hour away as a single mom with two young children was too far. Yeah. So yeah. we moved into family student housing on campus. We could see Allen Fieldhouse from our living room window and, and walk about two blocks to, to game. So it was wow, cool. really a joyful time. I lived on campus in family student housing twice in Santa Barbara and then in Lawrence. And it's just a special community. It's a lot of immigrants coming um, and actually, in fact, in Lawrence, Kansas, I was one other mom and I were the only American citizens. Wow. So it, was, it was pretty, pretty neat. That's so cool. I've, I've always wanted to do that. Like go to, go to school in a university and live in student house, like married student housing. I always thought that would be so cool. I never did it. I'm a little old now, but Man, who knows? <laughs> you never know. You have to talk your husband into it. Um, yeah, <laughs> that won't happen. So how long were you there, Molly? And what drew you back to the east side? I think I was there for about eight years. And, you know, Kansas City and Lawrence combined. And it was just time to come back, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I had actually, I think it probably had a lot to do with being a single parent. Um, I had gotten divorced and I was a single parent for about four years in graduate school working with two young children Yeah, and I could do it. Right. I had to prove it to myself. I could mm -hmm. do it, mm -hmm. but at the, 
after four years, you know, the temptation to be close to family who could help me, I thought, you know what, I can do it, but why? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why not access? And my parents have been the biggest support to helping rear my children that I could have ever asked for. And I think it made all of our lives better, you know? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's really nice to have that. And do you think so, your, do you think your kids? Sorry, Stacy. I'm just going to real quickly ask: Do you think your kids enjoy the the notion that they've grown up here, like you have, or do you think that they would prefer to stay in Kansas? No, absolutely. They both um, are avid climbers, skiers, snowboarders. They have will tell me often. Thank God we moved back to California. I love it. The outdoors in the Midwest, the people I really adored, the outdoors in the Midwest, and Stacey, this is something you can speak to, um, are just terrible. There's chiggers, like the chiggers alone. You can't go in the grass. How do you approach it? So odd. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not appealing to, you know, the weather and, yeah, it's just, yeah. And there's a lot of good things about it. Don't get me wrong. You know, Midwest people, please don't come at me. But No, it's um, the people, Stacey. That's what I say. Like, what was the best part of the Midwest? It's the people. The people are so real and honest and down-to-earth and family-oriented, honestly. Like, I think about that part a lot as well as, you know, with my work in early childhood is how... The whole culture of the Midwest is family centered and that's, there's so beautiful, so beautiful. Yeah, they are, there are absolutely great people there and there are a lot of nice things about it, but there's something special about Mono County and California and living, you know, I'm so happy I got to raise my kids here. You know, it was a a blessing for sure. So we're so lucky that you decided to go back to school and work on get your degree in early education because now you are the executive director for first five mono tell us what that's all like and what you do in your role yeah thank you it's an honor you know like it's if I think in my past, there's been times when I've said, you know, this is what I want to bring back to my community. And I think that's a lot of the people I've admired in my life. That's something they've done, right? They've gone and pursued their dreams. And then they bring that skill knowledge back to a, a community that may not have, you know, the, most of the time people leave and get an education and do whatever and don't come back or mm-hmm. that can be the case. So I I do feel really privileged and excited to be able to do that. Um, Maya, I have a confession to make about the early childhood degree. I actually have no background, formal education in early childhood. It's in anthropology, right? Which there is a lot that I use from my education and application to my career. You know, just having a master's degree, there's a lot that goes into that in terms of meeting deadlines and all that jazz. And then anthropology, of course, often considers how culture is transmitted Mm -hmm. through early childhood, like on the knee of your mom, right? Or your father or your extended family, Um And my job now entails a lot of things that I've learned, you know, Mm -hmm. budgeting, uh, Brown Act, my goodness, (laughs) the ways I've grown and learned about those things has been um, 
really exponential over my years as I've tried to fill this position as best I can. And I'm still growing and, you know, learning really every day. Um, really. <laughs> Molly, you know, uh, you were kind enough to explain this when I first came back to me. For our listeners who are a little more uninitiated, can you describe what First Five is and what its goals are? Because I think it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, So First Fives are present in every county in the state of California. They're funded by tobacco taxes which was passed by Proposition 90, no, Prop 10, 10. sorry, there's another one that gets thrown in there. So I'm going to hang on just a sec. (laughs) Passed by Prop 10 um, in 1998, and they became a mechanism to fund services for families and children prenatal to age five in each county, and something that's unique about the funding stream is that there's a lot of county control. Each county is able to shape the services to match community feedback, which is a unique thing in, in a lot of ways. So First Five in Mono County began shortly after that, and in most counties there's also a statewide First Five California Um, Our funds come through them. They also provide a lot of supplemental funding for projects that we almost always participate in locally in Mono County. Yeah, so what's really neat about um, Prop 10 is that that was shepherded and piloted and promoted by uh, the actor Rob Reiner. And Prop 10 generates its funds from a tax on tobacco. And uh, it was quite uh, transformative that, that he did that. And First Five California was created out of that, those funds. So really, yeah, really like cool. A lot of love for Rob Reiner around First Five, for sure. Like everybody just recognizes the important work that he did and how visionary he was to bring it to the voters too, which is of course something kind of uniquely Californian. It happens other places, but the voter initiative process in California is also pretty unique. So that was awesome. Well, I'm just impressed with the range of things that first five in Mono County partners with other organizations on. We're of course a partner for raising a reader, um, but also just the other activities that you do. Can you talk about like who works for you and what, what is a day in the life of someone who works for first five? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, our, we have five different areas that we try to impact. Um, but most of our staff are home visitors and, uh, to a lesser degree, playgroup leaders. And their lives are really hard to imagine for anybody that hasn't been a home visitor. <laughs> because, well, I mean, obviously you can imagine it, but it's hard to really maybe fully understand it. Um, so home visitors in their day are driving from their homes or the office to people's homes all across Mono County Topaz to Chalfont um, all year round, once a month or twice a month, and providing an hour's worth of support to the family. 
And that support is structured around learning child development, um, family well-being. You know, does the family have any needs that we can help connect them to resources for? Um, and then a parent-child interaction, otherwise known as playing together. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, of course, the most fun part. And that's really the most fun of, part of early childhood, right? It, that yeah. play is the work of early childhood. So that joy that's woven into all of our days at First Five is is something that's really special. Yeah. That's so cool. I think it must be, I'm not a parent, but I now know multiple people who are just become or are becoming parents locally in the Eastern Sierra. And I think there must be a unique challenge to many young families on this side of the mountains because there aren't that many resources immediately available. You have to travel for hours to get certain kinds of assistance or something like that. And and so having this ability for some families to have a visitor come to them, even though they live out in Chalfon off Highway 6 or Benton or Topaz or Cold... I mean you know, otherwise they might be completely on their own, it, it sounds like. And so it just sounds like it's a great, great thing to avail themselves of. Yeah, we'll share that information with the new parents that you know. There's a button <laughs> on our website, Join Home Visiting, blue in the top right-hand corner. Um, and then in addition to that, right, thanks for recognizing that. I, I do, I think, in that isolation that families that face here Another unique aspect is that many people move up here and don't have family, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, right. I mentioned that from how I was feeling in Lawrence and it's noticeable, right? When, the, when you have a larger population, higher percentage um, that live away from their extended family um, makes another challenge. And then something else we do, of course, the home visitors are coming out once or twice a month, but we'd like for parents to have more of an opportunity than that and also to get to know each other. So that's where our Peapod playgroups come in, generously funded by Mono County Behavioral Health. And we, those are, you know, COVID was a whole challenge with that situation. Um, They were virtual, which was not as de-isolating as a real playgroup was. Um, But now we're just kind of coming. It's spring. We're coming back out with the flowers. We have playgroups running right now in Chalfont, Bridgeport, two in Mammoth, and one in Crowley. So great. look it up on our website if anybody's listening that's interested. Yeah, it's, a, it's such, a, such a blessing and a benefit f- to have those programs in our county because we, we don't have a gymboree down the street. Yeah. We don't have, you know, places where, you know, new moms or and new dads can can connect, you know, readily. So by providing these opportunities, First Five is doing such a huge service um, to the parents and 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 the babies. So oh, thanks. That's nice to hear. I know my my staff will pass it along to them. They're they love to know that their work is recognized and and yeah yeah. I, thank you. It absolutely is and. So Molly, we always ask our guests, what are you reading now in your, in your spare time when you're not, you know, driving all the, the, the first five traffic and, you know, keeping all the balls in the air? Uh, What do you like to read or what are you reading now? Well, I've, I've had some phases in my reading over my life, which probably all of us have. And 
since graduate school, I had a really hard time reading, but as much as I had in the past, I, you know, was an avid reader when I was young and then I read a lot for my job. So it's been less and less, but I would, you know, think that the thing that I read most often for my own time is the LA times and (laughs) I, I miss it dearly. The printed paper you know, right? since they stopped delivering it up here. And and whenever I do get a chance to go to Southern California, the 7-Eleven is generally the first place I hit to try to find a printed LA Times, which is getting um, fewer and farther between those 7-Elevens that actually still have them. Um, and it's getting so, thinner and thinner. <laughs> well, I wouldn't. Yeah, I guess it probably is. I was going to say I wouldn't know because I usually read it online, which is just a whole new process. I refused to read it for a while when they quit delivering it. And then I realized like, OK, hold on. I still need to read the newspaper. So I've, I've transitioned. And I think Christopher knows this. I also miss having the printed copy of the L.A. Times because I used it to start my fire. Uh, this is true right many of us can realize that yes I, I totally i'm down with you molly i start every day reading the papers and i generally now that they're online in a way it's convenient because i now can skim two or three different ones la times included but i whenever i can get to a printed copy that you there's multiple sections you unfold it it's a ritual and yeah. there's a way that you unfold it and you know where you go first and it's in a way that that ritual in itself is is almost meditational in a way right like you're for me i'm cutting out the rest of the world while i've got the paper and my coffee in front of me i don't know what how you approach it but well my preferred approach is on the beach <laughs> so it's 7-Eleven, get the newspaper, and then go to the beach with it. That's the process. <laughs> you know, we, we, we talk about that often in our house, my husband and I, how we miss the Sunday, you know, for us, it's the San Diego, the Union Tribune, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this, and um, then when we moved up here, it was this getting the Sunday LA Times, right? And, you know, well, who gets the sports section first? You know, that kind of thing. We, re- you know, we do really miss that. And I, I have not been able to make the shift to reading like the LA Times online. Uh, and I, I have asked for the last like four Christmases for a subscription to the New York Times mm-hmm. online and nobody gets, Santa doesn't bring it for me. And well, okay, so I'm going to put on my county library director hat, Stacey, and, and remind our listeners that if you have a Mono County Library card, you can access the New York Times except the cooking section online with that card for free every day. Um, although I know a lot of people really like it for the cooking section. But, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to use this as an opportunity to also just point out to our listeners Again, living in a beautiful remote area, as these services and products shrink over time or morph mm-hmm. online, it becomes really difficult to get them here. As right. a library, I get asked frequently, can we get you know certain newspapers delivered to libraries? And they just won't do it. They won't even mail it. Um, or else they'll charge you an exorbitant amount of money. And, um, you know, I kind of... It's a, it's a, I don't know, it's a generational shift or a societal shift or something, but I think there's something that's getting lost out of that. Although yeah. I will also say I am really impressed that on the east side in the Eastern Sierra, we have three or four, four at least, regular newspapers that are local. 
including one in Spanish, which is amazing mm-hmm. when so many parts of the country are becoming news deserts completely. You know, we've got the sheet, the mammoth times, El Sol, the scoop. I mean, there's all sorts of different yeah. ones that people can pick up. So, um, I think that's just really important. Well, off, Molly, off thank you. S- that was a good, that was a good public <laughs> service announcement. The more, you know, the more, you right. know, I'm sorry. I cut you off. My hot, my hot tip for you with the LA Times app, if you ever go that way, but New York Times probably has it too, is to do the e-newspaper. So it doesn't look like a Google News feed. It actually oh, okay. is a picture of the newspaper. Oh, maybe that that's a good tip. Thank you. I will. I'll try to look for that. Or I might just show up at your office and show, how do you do that? Um, (laughs) Molly, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking time from your very busy schedule to talk with us. And we learned a lot about you and about First Five. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode of the Oxygen Star podcast. Please remember that you can find us on our Instagram page at O2Starved and our website, OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. We love to hear from you. So please let us know what you're reading these days, what you think about Nick Offerman's book, if you have read it. And if you are a newspaper reader still, let us know. Have a great rest of your day and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. In Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.